Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I'd like to thank my latest subscriber on Patreon, Graham, for his support and all my other Patreon supporters. If you would like to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and you'll find many ways to subscribe, plus extra bonus material and episodes to enjoy, including this month's interview with my good friend and composer Ben Dawson. You can also support the show by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, which will help expand the audience and is greatly appreciated. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who founded the award-winning Gabrielli Consort in 1982. His career has seen him conduct all over the world in repertoire ranging from the Baroque to Bang Up to Date. It's a pleasure to welcome Paul McCreish. Paul, what a pleasure it is to speak to you today. Very nice to meet you, Michael. Um, I'd like to start by giving you a hearty congratulations. It's only a few days ago that uh, you won an award, the BBC Music Magazine Recording of the Year for 2020. Yes, that was a, that was a pleasure. Yes, I've sort of gone back to the Baroque world for a bit, and um, it's quite nice, really, because you sort of wonder if you can still do it. <laughs> so, um, it was no, it's great. We, we, we've loved the music of Purcell. We've played it for sort of... 25, 30 years, and um, it's yeah, it's just fantastic music, and it's really ensemble music. So, really pleased for everybody. You know, there are some projects we do that are you know more conductor based. We're doing you know Warwick or Elijah's whatever, but this is very much sort of chamber music, and we'd work very hard collectively. So, I'm particularly pleased actually for everybody because it really is a sort of corporate music making experience, not just in the playing, but also in the musicology. We did a lot of work to rethink these pieces. So it's very much a tribute to my great colleagues and also to our supporters who twisted our arm to record these personal pieces and we raised, raised some money to make it all happen. So everybody should be happy and I'm, I'm delighted. Um, I wonder whether we could go right back to the beginning of your life and when music first entered it. What were your first musical experiences? Um, I came to music perhaps rather surprisingly really um you know there are many musicians who sort of almost seem predestined to be players or conductors or singers or whatever it is yeah, um, yeah. and i i wasn't really i was brought up in a very ordinary really nice perfectly loving family but uh, in the suburbs of, um, you know in, in hornchurch and romford the east end of Mr. East End of London. Um, my mother quite liked music in a sort of very vague way. My father had really no musical knowledge or experience at all. But um, they were both wonderful parents, and my father particularly, who sadly only died a few weeks ago, he, uh, he had this real vision that he wanted his children to learn about things and know things that he didn't know and to have experiences that he hadn't had himself. Um, so we all played musical instruments and sang a little bit, um, but I wasn't sort of, you know, sent to um, private school or I wasn't a choir boy at King's or any of the traditional routes that conductors seem to uh, go through. Um, and I think the music, you know, I, I liked music. I was quite a talented kid, but sort of, you know, local youth orchestra talent, not sort of yeah. national orchestra level. Um, and slowly went through various youth orchestras, sang a little bit, even conducted a little bit at school with friends. We did a few charity concerts. Quite shy as a teenager. You find that quite amusing now. Um, <laughs> and it was actually a very nice way of sort of having a social life. So um, you know, those, were, those were, were happy days. I then went to Manchester University. Um, generally, just liked the noise that music makes i mean i still do in a way you know um there's something amazing isn't there about being a kid and being able to play in a you know even an amateur symphony or play a tarkovsky symphony or whatever you, you know is in front of you i mean you know not that you might necessarily be able to play every note but there's just a fantastic experience of sharing music and and yeah it was, a, it, was a, it was a hobby i felt very comfortable with so you said that you'd already done a little bit of conducting. When you were at the University of Manchester, did you have any formal conducting training or was it just something you did whilst you were there? Um, no, not really. I only ever studied conducting privately and that was really much later in my 20s. Um, I went to a couple of Canford courses, which I found useful. I mean, I had no particular um, 
desire or, or idea of becoming a professional conductor. I'm not really sure I would have known what that was about. In fact, I think, and I don't think I was abnormal in this sense, I think a lot of students of my generation, you know, we sort of went through university and we had a good time and we ate and drank and <laughs> did all the things that students did, but probably not enough of one of them. And um, it was all fine. It was, it was, it was, it was great. I enjoyed it. Um, but I think when I graduated, there was this sort of horrible feeling, uh, Christ, now what do I do next? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and, and this is funny, you know, I was um, just, actually I, was, I, um, I was talking with Ed Gardner recently. We meet up once a year and have a nice big boozy, <laughs> boozy um, supper. And um, I think he's done one of your, your previous podcasts. Uh, he has, and, and we've had a couple of boozy suppers as well over the years. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, and I said to him, you know, and he was talking about, you know, being at Eton and, and, and Ralph sort of, you know, having conducting masterclasses. And I just sort of laughed out loud and said, you know, it's just like a completely different world. I mean, the idea of being trained to be a conductor when you're a teenager, it's just something that a normal state kid would, would, would never dream of, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I left university. I mean, I studied musicology and performance, cello with Gregor Smith. Again, did a lot of um, conducting of students, um, instrumentally and vocally. Um, put together a performance of the Festivals in my last year uh, at Manchester, which sort of, it was quite a big event um, and sort of to some degree was the beginnings of forming Gabrielli's. Um, we did bring it down to London six months later, but again, I had no real conception of how the business sort of worked. I suppose probably the best I would have expected is it might have become a bit of a, sort of an enjoyable hobby type activity. Um, and I actually did a teaching job for four or five years at the Leicester School of Music. Um, so that would have been from when I was sort of 21 till I was 26, 27. Um, I really sort of rather enjoyed some of that. I mean, I've always loved working with young people. It's something which I've sort of come back to at my older age. Um, but at the same time, I think there was perhaps quite a degree of restlessness there that I really wanted to get out there and do more professional work. So at age 26, 27, I gave up a, a perfectly safe teaching job and pension and everything else. Uh, and uh, within three years, I had a recording contract with George Gramathal, which was the most frightening learning curve. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and so how did you come about starting the Gabriellis, as you called him, Gabrielli Consort and Players? You were 22, I read, um, which is, you know, amazing age to just suddenly think, right, I'm going to start something up. Yes, I mean, I don't know. What were you like at 22? Um, <laughs> I, was play, I was playing the violin in the CBSO and that was about all that ever interested me at the time. <laughs> well, yes, but yeah. I mean, to, to be a good enough fiddle player at 22 to play in the CBSO is, is quite an achievement. You know, I, I, was, I was very much doing it on the side, if you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely, um, yeah, and, yeah. And developing ideas. And I'll tell you one thing, I think it was very good for me in a way that I had to be self-taught because, you know, if I'd have been on one level lucky enough to sort of go through the traditional backgrounds and go to the private schools and end up at Cambridge or whatever, um, I think I might have become a bit smug and I think I sort of was slightly hungry to learn. I mean, I was reading voraciously. I was a much better postgraduate. I mean, I never studied formally. You know, I was always reading and working actually even talking to my lecturers i was much better than i was uh, as a student you know i needed more time to develop and i think so th that process was quite good for me and also i think the process of teaching if you take it seriously which i think i did even as a young young man uh, i think it's a very good way of really understanding music i mean you can do it many ways you can do it through playing the violin and the cbso and, and that would have been a really interesting experience for me i mean i was a cellist uh, you know, that was never really a road that I, I felt I could go down. I mean, uh, it, it's interesting that you talk about the fact that as a student, you felt that you were probably not quite as um, diligent or... Uh, I was much the same, you know, when I was a student as a violinist. You know, yeah, I, I, of course I practised. I practised hard enough to get a job in, in the profession. But actually, when I started doing my thing on the side, which was learning to conduct or conducting, I seem to be a much better student at that because it was on the side and I was interested in it as a sort of, you know, hobby way to start with. And so I agree with you that, you know, that that, that passion that you have away from, in your case, teaching, in my case, playing the violin and orchestra was 
was something that became all-consuming. Um, yeah, I think you're right. And I think I've always got, you know, I sometimes get a little bit bored in my life of, you know, the Wunderkind. You know, yeah, it's always wonderful when you, when you see somebody who's, you know, a great violinist at 14 or 15 and is doing a really unhealthy amount of practice. But I've always got a real soft spot for the late developer, you know, the, the, the people who take time to come in the business, because often they're, they're perhaps the better musicians underneath it all, you know. Um, and and I, I think for me, I, I, I needed time, you know. I, yeah. The university for me was three years where, you know, there were other, other more important things to learn how to work with people, to learn how to socialise with people, to learn about the delights of women um you know all the things that one should actually do at university um and yeah i mean i'm still in touch with, with my professor and, and my tutor they're still two very close friends of mine and and you know and david fallows particularly who was a professor at manchester i mean he you know when we meet occasionally he's now in basel and and we also have a, a good supper and he'll sort of say he said more than once he said we do tend to dine out on your success in the perspectives but, um, I've been asked to put a quid on whether you'd be one of our most successful graduates. I would not have placed that bet. And he was and he, you know, and he was absolutely right. I mean, there was a lot of raw talent, a lot of energy, but the application and the focus took a long time to, to really come together. Um, you mentioned earlier on about, uh, you know, three years after start starting or three years after leaving the teaching profession that you got a recording contract with Deutsche Grammophon. I'm going to slightly jump ahead to say that, you know, you had that contract with Deutsche Grammophon for 15 years and then went on to create your own record label, Winged Lion. I mean, why why do that? Firstly, because, you know, it's a it's a it's a funny business, the, the record business, uh, but also what were the different challenges that you had setting up a record label as opposed to founding and running your own ensemble like the Gabriellis? Well, I suppose, you know, it has to be confessed. I've always been a bit of a businessman. You know, I'm, 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 uh, I eat what I kill. Um, you know, <laughs> um, I've never received a penny of subsidy to run Gabriellis. And I think the commercial discipline of, you know, has certain advantages in the music business, although I have to say at the moment it's proving rather uh, rather frightening. Um, mm. But to answer your question directly, I had 15 years working with Deutsche Grammophon. I was so privileged and so honoured to work with the label of the real stars um, and slightly terrified at first, you know, to find one's place uh, with the history behind you. Um, but they also paid me money to make recordings, many of which actually did quite well. Um, at least in terms of critical adulation, it didn't make the rich, but that's fine. That wasn't the that wasn't the aim. Um, and but you know you know the histories of the recording business. You know we're talking to 10, 15 years ago. Um, record companies were becoming less and less interested in recording core repertoire. They were becoming less and less interested in artists themselves in the sense of long-term commitments to artists, which at the beginning was, was wonderful. Um, and, you know, when in the old days, when you went to Dodge Grammophon before my time, you know, you may well stay there for 20, 30, 40 years, and they'd allow you to develop. I was getting to my sort of um, mid-40s and felt that their real interest was simply, like all rental companies, becoming more commercial, uh, signing up, Know, ever newer people for shorter contracts uh, to be a little bit cynical you know ever prettier sopranos to make ever shorter number of records and I just felt that we'd come to a natural time where their interest in me was just occasional projects particularly sort of working with artists which didn't always fit with my repertoire desires and it just felt like a natural time to, for the parting of the ways um very amicably i still talk to a lot of my colleagues there we even occasionally talk about dreaming up projects but i think it makes more sense to have my work under the banner of my own record label it's obviously a massive challenge because recording now requires enormous investment I and mean, investment isn't really the word because obviously it's investment which is uh, investment in the art commercially it, it just requires support which will never be paid back it's very much the old gag with recording you know how do you become a, a, a millionaire in music start with a billionaire and <laughs> certainly with some of our 
crazy recordings. I won't tell you the figures that pertain, you will probably know. Uh, and it's a really great way to throw a lot of money away, but it's also a great way to make fantastic music and explore a lot of repertoires. So that's why we do it, and that's why, thank God, people support us to do it. Well, I mean, the, looking at the wonderful repertoire, um, you know, we, we go from Purcell to Berlioz to Britain to Mendelssohn, um, which shows that, you know, having started out with the Gabriellis, that you really do conduct from, you know, medieval music right the way through until the present day. Um, I'm going to go on to an area now where, where it's a phrase that I'm not sure many people like, but uh, pigeonholing. And, and, you know, I've looked at your, you conduct everything everywhere, pretty much. Um, probably a lot more and uh, symphonic repertoire, big stuff, than you do the stuff which to which you could possibly be argued you've been pigeonholed as. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and it drives me absolutely start raving bonkers. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I can give you, you know, an example. I mean, I never work in the UK um, because the only thing orchestras ask me to do is annual messiahs. And really, that is simply not what I want to be doing in my life. And it's certainly not what I want to be doing in my life at age 60. Um, uh. So I politely and tactfully say no. Um, but it is quite extraordinary how, you know, all the orchestras here uh, cannot seem to break into the mainstream repertoire. Uh, and if you look at my CV in terms of foreign orchestras without, you know, uh, making lists on a podcast, you know, I've worked with some pretty amazing orchestras throughout the Indeed, world. Yeah, uh, I've, yeah. been, I've been honoured and, 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 and privileged to work with them. So I, I just totally, you know, I could understand if a British orchestra doesn't want me to conduct a Rangalila, that would would not be my core repertoire. And the idea that I'm incapable of conducting, you know, any of the standard oratorio repertoire, for example, which I've recorded and won awards in pretty much every country, it does, it is quite frustrating. Um, and certainly I don't, you know, I'm not saying never a very occasionally I will do a Messiah or a Matthew Passion with a symphony orchestra, but it is pretty rare because I just, don't feel the hunger to do it and it's only going to be with an orchestra that i really want to work with or an orchestra that i know is really excited to to look at music in a different way i don't want to be a school teacher and people not to vibrate yeah i know what you mean uh, i mean it's it's something that i brought up in an earlier podcast with, with wayne marshall and, and the fact that you know how do you get yourself out of that pigeonhole do you try or do you just, you know, I mean, you know, basically how I view what you do is that you, you have a very normal career everywhere except for possibly the UK where everybody else seems to know exactly what you're about and accepts you for what you are, which is an all-encompassing musician. You know, you don't just sit in a dusty library, you know, looking at mordants and trills and, and talking about not, you know. <laughs> um, oh, you're absolutely right. I've got yeah. no idea. I mean, French mordants and all that sort of stuff. That's why you employ good harpsichordists. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I am a generic musician. It's the fundamental musicality which can be applied to anything. And there is no real difference in the way that I approach, you know, a programme of Ramo and I approach a programme of Foley. It is the same sort of, you know, mixture of emotional input and intellectual questioning, yeah. knowing how to read a score, which is something which drives me a little bit crazy with conductors. You know, when I say reading a score, it's not actually knowing that the horn in F, but actually knowing what is there in terms of the structure of the music and why it's written as it is. Mm. Um, and, and, and that, you know, a degree of historical knowledge is often quite useful there, and particularly in, and I think particularly in, in, in 20th century repertoires, sort of knowing, actually in all repertoires, knowing the type of instruments for which the music was made is often really quite helpful. I mean, one very simple article, let's go back to Birmingham, uh, you know, that, uh, why are Mendelssohn's brass parts always over-marked? Um, they're always fortissimo, when the rest of it is for... And there is actually a letter from Mendelssohn saying that British brass players don't make very much noise. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> those, those were the days um, yeah. in the 19th century. But that's a sort of just a very simple idea of, of how a little bit of historical knowledge is actually very helpful when you're sort of to interpret what's written there. Going away from the UK, um, uh, the, the standout for you was a principal conductor with the Gulbenkian Orchestra in Lisbon. Um, how did that come about and, and how did you enjoy your time in, in Lisbon as principal conductor? Um, it came about because I'd worked with the orchestra a couple of times as a, as a guest conductor and very much enjoyed working with them. And I, they were interested in me as 
as, as a principal guest conductor. The chap that they were interviewing as principal conductor in the end went somewhere else, um, and they offered me the, the principal conductor job. And I'll be quite honest with you, and I think it's long enough past now for me to be honest. Mm. I don't think it was a particular success. Um, I was quite disappointed in, 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 in three years I spent there, which is why I didn't renew. Mm. Um, I think there are always times when you have to take the bigger picture. I, I'm certainly not going to sit here and directly criticise the orchestra. I think they were going through quite a difficult time. Uh, they were nervous about the existence of the orchestra because the Orchestra Foundation had uh, disbanded the ballet company a few years earlier. The hall was being renovated. And I think also possibly, although they'd liked me as a guest conductor, I think my musical demands of them after uh, Lawrence Foster, who'd been there for, I think, 18 years, a uh, lifetime, were perhaps too much of a jump at the time. So I would say that it was a difficult experience. I'm also not sure to be self-critical, whereas I'm the right conductor to be churning out repertoire 12 weeks a season. Um, I like to take more time. So I think there were a number of factors there which made it slightly hard work. It was a slightly uncomfortable experience. I didn't renew, and it's one of those sadnesses that, in a way, I think it's perhaps the only job that I've taken that I felt a sense of failure, because even if you don't like the way an orchestra is behaving or or the way it's working, you know, there's always that little, I think there should be inside every conductor, uh, that uh, little voice saying, you know, you need to make this work. You've got to do better. That's your job. Uh, but I felt at the end that the marriage was just not comfortable. And that's why, it, you know, it, I, I didn't renew. And I'm very happy to say that, you know, they, they've moved on with another conductor. Um, I think the orchestra was playing very well under my um, uh, you know, under my leadership, and or every review said that, but it was just that sense that I hadn't actually um, somehow wasn't able to take the orchestra or enough of the orchestra on that journey. Now, you know orchestras well enough, you've been on the inside one. There is never any appointment where an orchestra is 100% unanimous, but it was just, as I say, a difficult time for them, and I was a little bit frustrated. I didn't feel I was getting what I needed out of the job. It, it came to a natural end. There were no tears, there were no tantrums, um, but I felt I'd done my time. And uh, I would, you know, certainly consider another directorship, but I do think it would have to be an orchestra, which I was very convinced that there was a, perhaps a slightly longer conversation about aims and objectives before you actually get there. I think that was one of the, one of the issues that came to bite me. So that's an honest appraisal of a, of a relationship which was acceptable but, but not entirely comfortable from both sides. Uh, and I think one of the things that conductors ought to do is be really honest because, you know, we, we're terribly good at presenting an image and I could have sat there and told you uh, it was an absolute marvel, it was tremendous. And it wasn't and I think we should be honest about that. And I think as an orchestral player in your past, um, you probably appreciate when conductors are honest it's always a good place to start isn't it you know? <laughs> and, I think, and I think you also you all smell very quickly when there's dishonesty you know? yes very much so I mean to what you just said I say here here I also say that um everybody who's come on this podcast has been again like you pretty frank and honest and you know they've said yeah, some have, some have said, yeah, I've had some terrible times guest conducting. Or I've, you know, things have not gone well. And, I, and, and, and then what you've just said about being honest to an orchestra is absolutely true. When I started conducting, it was something, a mantra I told myself, be honest. If you've screwed up, tell the orchestra you've screwed up. Don't, you know, gloss over it. Or, or you know, the old conductor's trick of stopping and blaming somebody else for something that might have happened. Um, I never wanted to do that. And... Uh, and I think it's so, so important, that honesty. And so, yeah. I, I, think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's absolutely important that it should not be seen as a sign of weakness. No. To say, can we do that again? I need to do that better for you. Mm. Um, you know, don't say every bar because you're getting paid more money. <laughs> you know, um, and, and, you know, you have to be competent because you don't, you know, you soon get ratty as a conductor. Violins aren't doing their job properly. Yes. I think, you know, I think... A, a degree of sort of, of honesty and it's a difficult job we all do and I think conductors need to be more honest but I also think not every orchestra because I think most orchestras are reasonably well disposed most of the time 
But I think sometimes one or two people in orchestras perhaps need to just remember that actually the sort of the, the default position of passive aggression doesn't help conductors, especially young conductors. You know, um, the worst thing about our job, and you know, is that we have to do everything first time in front of an orchestra. And that's, you know, that's a tough process. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the truth has to be always somewhere in the middle. Yes, I agree. Totally agree. Um, passive aggressive behaviour. Yeah, indeed. It's something something that uh, blights our time with a lot of the time. And it's actually also something that when I look back at what I was like as a player, uh, compared to what I'm what I now see conducting, I think, you know, for 22, not all of my 22 years, by, but at least the first 10 of it, I, I look back and think, oh, you should have cut a lot more conductors than slack. Um, <laughs> and, and being it's, amazing. It's, it's interesting, yeah, I mean, it's interesting how quickly orchestral musicians make decisions, you know, and, mm. um, you know, I do think there would be certain things that would be helpful. Uh, a little bit of feedback on a Tuesday, Mm. wouldn't be a bad idea uh i don't know how one might manage that but maybe there might be somebody on the artistic committee who might just come into your room on the tuesday and say you're really great but a little bit of that we feel would help us and likewise you know otherwise just sort of shut up till friday and then after the concert make a judgment but i think too often um, people have made a decision by 10 15 on a monday morning and that's a mm. pity because i've seen conductors work you know, when you're a principal conductor, you can see other conductors work. And sometimes, you know, people do a great Monday morning rehearsal and it stagnates. And sometimes it takes a day or two to settle, but then the work begins to happen and the concert's quite good. Um, and, you know, there are so many factors that have to be considered. Uh, and I think the other problem that we all suffer from, and I think this is, it doesn't matter whether you're a or whether you're an orchestral musician, but you know, as well as I do as an orchestral musician, that there are people who are put there because they need to be there and their, their profile or their, you know, is, is deemed to be necessary for the orchestra rather than because there's any particular reason artistically they should be there. Mm. Uh, and I think that's always a slightly um, frustrating process sometimes. Do you have a different approach or a different attitude when you conduct something, let's say, as big as the War Requiem versus conducting something as small, uh, at least in instrumental terms, as the Purcell King Arthur? You know, with the amount of forces, you might go from something like 30 people to something like 400 people. Do you, I mean, I, I'm sure musically your approach to the music is exactly the same, but just with the people in the room, do you have a, uh, do you think that you, you treat them any differently? Yeah, totally. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're working with your own ensemble in, in Purcell, I mean, I'll rehearse extremely hard. I'll be a good pair of ears, but my role is really no more than being a good recording producer, if you like. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. You know, the truth of the matter is, um, and I've frequently asked most if I can do this, I'd be really happy to rehearse them really hard and just sit in the front row and watch them. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, they don't need me to really, I mean, I, I, there's a certain amount of focus and energy that I can bring to the process, mm. but it's not physically um, uh, necessary to be, if I'm just reading Peter Holland's book on Before the Baton, have you read that? No, it's I haven't. It's a no. history of directing, um, you know, the direction of, of music mainly in England, sort of up to about 1850. Mm. Um, or time beating is actually as it was called and, 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 is, and it makes you realise how completely modern concept of conducting is even yes. you know, particularly for old music so um, when you go to, in front of an orchestra to do a war record, obviously it's a very different process partly because you know, you had a piece as complicated as that. You have to be physically very present as a conductor there is a role, there is a job to do and you know I I'm the first conductor to be quite tough on people who've come from my background and stand in front of symphony orchestras with pretty much no technique. Um, I don't suppose you've ever met any of those. Um, <laughs> but, and I say this with, with total honesty, you know, I don't think I am particularly gifted physically as a conductor. I have to work bloody hard at it and I do work bloody hard at it and that's why actually I don't think orchestras generally played about the technique 
it's good enough to do the level of work I do and get re-invitations. And I'm working it very, very hard. Um, having said that, um, I think one of my great strengths, and possibly for some orchestral musicians, it would be perceived as a weakness, is a very sort of forensic pair of ears and a real desire to work in detail. Um, and I think that does come from my background in, in old music, working how scores go together, you know, being very, I mean, I love the complexity of an orchestra. And, you know, I will rehearse the war requiem in some degrees as I would rehearse chamber music, you know, with real sense of ear for balance. And as you know yourself from your years as a player, there are some people in an orchestra who find that process really rewarding and interesting and worth the work. And others who just, their default position is always, oh, for fuck's sake, why can't we play it? Am I allowed to say for fuck's sake on, on your podcast? Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 well, you just did, and that's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you another chance. And say, oh, for goodness sake, why can't you just let us get on with it? Um, so, you know, there is a sort of balance there. And I think also with orchestral musicians, it, it sort of depends actually what side of bed they got out of. It depends on the particular music. It depends on who they had last week. And actually, I was having an interesting conversation with uh, particularly well-known manager of a well-known British orchestra recently in the pub. And he said, actually, I know if I put you in front of my orchestra, the strings would adore you. Uh, the winds would probably be okay with you and the brass just would be really irritated because all they really want to see is somebody who flicks nicely and they can play on time. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, that's interesting. That was an analysis, analysis of a very good orchestra. You know, yeah. uh, there are so many people who want different things. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I mean, actually, what I, I, uh, I was going to add into that is that, yes, within an orchestra, you have all of those attitudes, but I do get the feeling that certain orchestras are more willing to work hard than others. And that's also differs from country to country as well, as I'm sure you found out that, you know, in, there's a much more, for instance, when I've worked in Germany, there's a much more sort of willingness to work on. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But, that, I mean, but then I, that's all, yeah. also because they've got more time to do it as well. But I also think it's quite hard if you're brought up as a British conductor. I mean, I never had this because most of my work, as I say, has always been abroad. But if you're brought up as a British conductor and everything's on two and a half rehearsals, yes. when you actually have six rehearsals to rehearse a programme, you've got to learn to pace it in a different way. And I have certainly, you know, I'd say to, to my criticism, you know, it's, I have to remind myself when you go into an orchestra on Monday morning, and there's just that first hour where they sound like a school orchestra, you know, and you just think, why am I doing this job? And actually, you know, if you just keep it calm and encourage and let them bed in and get used to you and just get used to the notes they're playing, sometimes those orchestras can make a very good performance. They'll work really hard, you know, over three or four days and the show at the end of the week will be really rather impressive. Conversely, I've worked once or twice with some really quite good orchestras, can't get beyond that basic level of, excellence or at least very high level of competence you know because it's quite hard to get the imagination going I think one mm. particularly fantastic orchestra i mean world famous orchestra and you know i found it quite hard because you know it wasn't that it was bad it was actually it was very good but just to get things to slightly change to have a different color very difficult do you have a reason why you would conduct some things with baton? For instance, I've watched you do the end of a wonderful performance of Schubert 9 with a baton. And then the Purcell, I watched uh, the whole performance on YouTube where you don't use a baton. Now, do you have a decision process for this? Is it just intuitive? Is it the size of the forces? Um, I think the, the answer is I changed my mind probably too often. There was a long period where probably, you know, sort of for 15 years, sort of till about four or five years ago, where I was working in front of symphony orchestras 20 plus weeks a year. Mm. And with the odd exception of choral projects I might have done with Gabrielis, I would always use a stick because I just mm. felt that, you know, I was working in the choral repertoire where I felt the stick was most useful. Um, not to say that occasionally it wouldn't go down for a slow movement or something, but you know, yeah, I, uh, yeah. you know, particularly if an orchestra is is sort of rhythmically tight, you know, sometimes it's great not to sort of use the, but it, it's always there when you need it for a little bit more precision. It's it's it's, it's easier with big forces, I think, to relay the beat. So I use it all the time. Um, some of my my band, my Gabrielli's, got a bit arsy about it, and they said, look, if you want to do this <laughs> stuff, get rid of that bloody stick. We don't like sticks because we're early musicians. Um, and I sort of started to throw it away. Um, and 
in some ways I would quite like to have the confidence to see if I could do, you know, for example, the Elgar symphonies, which I do quite a lot. Mm. I've always, I always think it was a stick, you know, could I, do I have enough technique in the fingers to, to, to do without? I, I, I'm not sure, you know, I do find it quite useful in delineating complex rhythms or just, you know, giving that extra sense of rhythmic focus when you need it at the, at the yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, I, I do go hot and cold. Um, I, I do go, sometimes I just, you know, there's also videos where, you know, I mean, I'm in quite restrained mode and others where I'm thrashing like a pig. <laughs> there we are. You heard that from me. Um, and, um, yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's, um, I, I'm actually quite a big person, which I think I'd like to be more wiry because I think then I could somehow be more contained as a conductor. Um, but I think because I've got long arms and long legs, um, I, I, yeah, I always have to, slightly somehow they're in the romantic repertoire there's always an encouragement to use the space and sometimes I wonder if I use it too much but I also think sometimes you just have to be a little bit of self-analysis is helpful and too much just gets you completely tied in knots yeah. oh I agree with that as, as a fellow big person because I'm you know I'm pretty tall you know I, I do find that you know when it comes to a big climax you think use your body it's a, it's a plus point yeah, yeah, and there, and there are moments. I mean, like, you know, for example, that I mean, that, you know, that if you ever conducted like great climax in the war equipment, the Liberal yes. Army, I mean, it's yes. just what whatever physical gesture you make, what I need to do, that what I do there is I, I sort of physically compress everything inside because mm. the, the the intensity of the sound there is so strong that the more flapping you do, you know, it, you just have to. It just needs to be like a punch. You know? Everything has to be so drawn in, and I think that's a sort of interesting comparison you know we and even sometimes in pieces like the the great uh Berlioz from Mr. Moore you know again somehow resisting the temptation to flap when it's loud uh, mm. is is a good one but we all tend to do it I'm sure mm, absolutely with baton and without baton uh, is a very interesting topic for us conductors because I'm I'm like you I'm occasionally don't use a baton for a slow movement but then I look back on my playing days and I remember some people saying to me, oh, I do wish this guy would use a baton. More often than not, wind and brass and percussionists, string players seem, seem to worry less about it. Uh, uh, it's also, also quite interesting. Um, I have had conversations with orchestral musicians and you asked them, I did this in Lisbon once, did he use a stick or not? Some of them hadn't noticed. No. Uh, and that's, that, that's quite interesting. I mean, and you can make the obvious game that well, they never look long enough to know. But it, I mean, I think in some ways, I don't think the orchestra does mind as long as they, they feel they can play on it. But yes. the other thing that I also feel very strongly, I'll say two things which are partly self congratulatory and partly self critical. I think we live in a conducting culture where everything is well we live in a culture full stop don't we where everything is is technically obsessed mm. and you know yourself you know you sat there i'm sure in in, in you know a world-class orchestra like the cbso for conducting competitions and all the rest of it and a young conductor comes in and has music and beauty but buggers up a couple of tempo changes and they're out mm. um, and the definition of a great conductor now is somebody who's pretty and can conduct miraculous Mandarin without fucking up on no rehearsal. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think that's not what I'm interested in conducting. What I'm interested in, I was really flattered that somebody actually said this to me the other day. I was just actually saying goodbye to a player who was for many years in an American orchestra who's retiring, a wonderful woman. And, um, and she said to me, she said, I love the way you work here. We all love the way you work here. Because when you come into the talk, which is mainly a chamber orchestra, you show us the craft of music making. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing to say mm. because that's what I'm trying to get across. It's to understand, you know, when we conduct, do we, do we actually think about how we show the shape of a note or, or the legato or the, or the cantabile or the rubato in a phrase? These are much more interesting things mm. than, than actually whether that five was perfectly honed with yes. a balanced horizontal and vertical movement. Um, because that ain't going to happen with me, darling. Um, you know, it's, um, I, what I'm interested in is being technically good enough and being musically fantastic so they can't stop watching. I'm not there yet, but that's what I'm always aiming for. 
I think that's so true. Um, you know, I, I remember playing for you know technically wonderful conductors who didn't move me at all, and other people who were incredible musicians who, you know, you could say things about their technique, but through their sheer musicality alone, I wanted to play for. Um, yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. one of those in particular was Pinkas Zuckerman, you know, the great violin yeah, yeah, soloist, yeah. yeah, and he yeah. came and conducted. And I'm, I'm, you know. I'm sorry, Pinkas, but you're not the greatest conductor I've ever worked for, but by God, did I want to play for you. And that wasn't yeah, just because yeah. you're a great fiddle player, your musicality just oozed out of you. Um, yeah. and, and, and yeah, I think we're all stri striving for that sort of mixture, perfect balance between getting your musicality and thoughts across and enabling an orchestra to play in, in, you know, in a better also, way. Or I mean, how did you but, know this from your own work? It's also, it's you know the the real skill of conducting is knowing what not to say yes exactly you, yeah. know, you yeah. don't need to tell a horn player that they played a wrong note in that chord because if they don't bloody know they, should, they shouldn't have got the job yes you know yeah. um i'll be fine if they do it three times but mm. you know and, and and having it in an instinct and this is really hard particularly as a guest conductor you yeah. know i've been a whoring guest conductor for right. most of my life yeah. and you know sometimes it's relatively obvious where the the weaknesses are and where the smartness is in any orchestra but sometimes you're working through the week to sort of work out who needs help who doesn't you know and where you can put things right and where there are things that are best not discussed you know and, and that is our job it, it's it's dwelling on positives compensating where there are deficiencies but not upsetting the apple cart too much in a week it's it's, it's really hard when you come to learn a new score do you have a set routine um i'm thinking about do you sit at the piano to learn a new score do you just open it at the beginning and work your way through and are you a marker of scores or do you <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, i've never taught conducting formally um, but i do occasionally do some coaching uh, or sort of workshops or what have you and um yeah i'm afraid i just can't bear it you know the people who come in with the score marked with four different colors uh, just can't they read music it's so confusing if you can't read the score why do you need to mark it so if you look at most of my scores what am i going to mark yeah i might mark a few beating patterns if the beating patterns is changing i might very occasionally bracket something which i think might need a gesture to bring it out or but even that is unlikely i i like my scores to be you know pure and virginal which is of course just like the maestro um <laughs> the, i just i don't see the need to to mark stuff in, in any basic technical way um the danger i have is when i'm working on a score long term is i often write notes about the music or check balance or you know i've just been working on durantius because i'm supposed to be recording it that's a splendid and you know just marking elgar takes this one one two 1927 i mean there's sort of stuff which you don't really shouldn't mark on the score so very often before i get to the actual performance i'll transfer all those onto a piece of paper and rub it all out um i love to actually have a really clean score in front of me that to me is i also like to conduct when i can from memory it's so much i find it so much more um uh, freeing you know and yes. I think even when you have the score there the best one in the world you look at it and actually again i mean orchestral players have often said to me we get a lot of information from your eyes and your face um and i think that is actually where we should communicate it's not just about your arms you know um it's the whole body language but including your face you know there is a uh, you know everybody hates looking at themselves conducting particularly facially and i'm not sure analyzing it would ever make us uh better because i think it's such a personal response to music and it should be but i think we should be allowed to do that so the other part of your question was um well basically how you if if you're oh yeah is there a, is there a standard way of looking at scores yeah. or, um, or, or learning scores yeah uh it would depend on very much the type of music i mean you know if somebody says to me uh you've got to jump on a plane and conduct a mozart symphony tomorrow morning i'm going to shock everybody here um, I've probably conducted 70% of them and if it happened to be one of the 30 I haven't conducted it wouldn't worry me too hoots I could learn it for what I need on the plane um, simply because with no great respect disrespect to Mozart who I you know obviously like all musicians worship the, the air he breathes um, you know I have done so much work in the classical period repertoire music that I'm less familiar with or have less experience with which you know for me might be Brahms Symphony 
I will never play on the piano simply because my piano technique is so appalling that it would be a useless experience. I could hear it better in my ears. And I also say I'm totally prepared to break the cardinal rule and I will play a record and I'll play a dozen recordings. And to those people who say you should never do that because you assimilate all sorts of things that you can't, uh, that you're not thinking about, I just say, sorry, slightly arrogantly, what if? Uh, because, you know, I've never made a record which isn't for better or for worse, extremely strong of personality. You know, I'm mm. completely confident in that. And also my oral memory is terribly quick. So once I've heard the piece a couple of times through, it's say it's in there, that's ridiculous. But you know, the, the, the basic sound world is there and then I can begin the process of, of working on the score. Uh, and I just find it a very, very quick way of doing it. And I might well, uh, you know, play two or three recordings way apart, you know, um, partly because it's worse than just playing one person's recording. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a perfectly legitimate way of working, providing you are of the type of musician that sells questions. Absolutely. If you're just a, how do you say it, if you're just a sort of technical repeater of performances of which I might describe one or two of our esteemed friends and colleagues, um, then perhaps it's a more dangerous thing. I mean, I, I don't know what your feeling was, so I keep harking back to your, your days as a player, because I know that you know, you've moved over successfully to conducting, but I mean, I, I do sometimes think that a, a lot of performances are just not particularly interesting. You know, they're not good, they're not bad. But they're often, you know, if you were to play, I don't know, the last six Brahms fours that were broadcast on German radio, sometimes I think probably you'd be slightly struggling to know who the conductors were and who the orchestras were. You know, there's a sort of uniformity of yes. performance, which yeah. Yeah. is slightly, I think, slightly lost opportunity. Is that fair for me to say? Yeah, I think um, so. I, I, I... I, this came up in an earlier conversation with Daniel Harding, actually, and I said that, you know, well, I was talking about orchestras firstly, about the fact that, you know, when I grew up as a student, you could turn on Radio 3, and the game I would play with a mate of mine in a car journey is, which orchestra is this? Yeah. Um, and there was, a, there was a time, and it was probably 30 years ago and beyond, maybe 40 years ago and beyond, when you could actually, you, you knew it was the Chicago, you knew it was the Leningrad, you knew it was the Orchestra National de France or whatever. I think those days are, are changing because more and more orchestras in a positive way are now embracing playing music in the way that people think that it should sound because of who composed it rather than having an orchestral sound of their own. Um, but also I, ju I just think, you know, it, and the same with conductors, that, that everything has become sort of centre of the road politically if you if, to use a yeah. metaphor you know everything's sort of centrist and you know the yeah, yeah. The, the right wing and left wing to carry on with my political um, metaphor the right right wing and left wing conductors sort of disappeared for a while you know there are still a few today who stand out as being extreme at one end extreme or extreme at the other but i think everybody's sort of become very um, central in their in their views which i think is a shame i would like to yeah. make one a point going back on what you said I'd love to know who, who said it was a cardinal rule not to listen to recordings. There's a wonderful film on the Berlin Philharmonic uh, Concert Hall uh, interviewing conductors, and most of them say, you'd be stupid not to listen to recordings these days. Historical, brand new, everything in between. It's all out there for us to listen to. Um, it, you'd be stupid to, to copy any of them and not make an informed and self-judged opinion of your own, but you'd be it would be ridiculous of you not to listen to other people's recordings. So I agree with you completely. Um, yeah, no, I think I think it's just part of the res the, the resources of, of that we have at our disposal, and mm. you know, much the same as when I see other conductors working. I mean, I'm a magpie. If I see something that I think is interesting and good, or a gesture, or a way of just maybe a way of speaking to the orchestra, I'm going to nick it. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and why not? You know, yeah. if it works, because you don't know if it's going to work for you. But yeah. you know, it's it's. Um, I think we can all learn, you know, hugely from each other. Paul, it is 10 questions time, and as ever, I start at the very beginning. What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, 
I think birdsong's got to be pretty pretty high up there for natural noises. Um, and the worst sound in the world is scraping your nail on a blackboard. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I think it's got to be a really good bit of hill walking, hasn't it? Um, for me, I love being on the hills, in the mountains. I did walk the coast to coast, or actually almost all the coast to coast. I have four more days to do because my ankle gave in. But certainly the first week of that walking over the Lake Districts from west to east nearly killed me but it's the most wonderful spiritually uplifting thing you hear the most beautiful silence you'll ever hear in your life and uh, if you don't understand and love silence there's music means nothing so that's what i'd probably do who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear i don't really know i don't think i've listened to enough historic recordings to sort of um to um to to make a simple answer to that i mean i think one of the conductors who's almost of yesteryear because i think he's now retired is Heiting, who i did see conduct two or three times and actually a particular concert that i remember him doing with an orchestra that i have actually also conducted and he could make that orchestra sound 20 times better than i could i'll take my hat off too um actually maybe 20 times is exaggeration but he could certainly make a perfectly good orchestra sound a world-class orchestra and that i thought was just pure mixture of musicianship and technique and i felt it was incredibly impressive and who would be a favorite current conductor oh i find that impossible i mean it depends what you're looking for doesn't it i mean uh, you know if you want somebody whose technique you admire uh, certainly Daniel Harding is somebody I would like to be half as good as him technically I'd be comfortable there um, if you want an imaginative conductor well you can make your own decisions I mean it, it sort of depends on the mood I'm in what I mm. would say is that um, for me I don't have any gurus and I don't have any particular conductor I want to hear in every type of piece but what I do want from a conductor is something to happen so mm. I'm quite happy to come out of a concert and think sort of really didn't like the way he do, did that or she did that or it's not my thing or i don't see that piece in that way but you can respect a sort of vision of a different sort what frankly frustrates me is papier mache sort of conducting where it's all sort of okay and it's not going to upset anybody but there's nothing really worth getting out of bed for what is the hardest work you have ever conducted? It's a very difficult question, and I'll give you a very personal answer, which I shouldn't do. Um, well, you should. <laughs> I think it's actually the one of the pieces I find really hard is Brahms One. Um, mm -hmm. I'm terrified by it, almost to the stage where I've got a bit of an obsession about maybe not conducting it which is completely stupid um, but it's just somehow and it's not technical I mean, it is always tricky perhaps, but there's just something about the music about getting the balance between lightness and solemnity without it becoming bombastic I, I find it hard to recreate that work but having said that that probably means that that's a project that i need to take on in, in my 60s you know let's really really engage with the Brahms symphonies rather than be slightly frightened of them. two is fine two is like water for ducks back to me three it's fine i can deal with three i quite enjoy conducting three four i've only actually done once so strangely enough would you believe um and would love to get to know better but yeah i mean i think i even might say Brahms generally Composer I adore, but always feel slightly frightened by the music, musical demands of the, of the music. Uh, so, yeah, but that's out of love. You know, sometimes if you love a piece so much, you're slightly frightened of conducting it. And that's uh, I chuckled earlier on when you were talking about uh, a Brahms piece and then thinking, Brahms one, and thinking that you know you ought to go back and do it again i had exactly the same experience and why i chuckled was uh mine was brahms too and i did it very early on and i looked back on it and immediately thought all you've tried to do is copy one particular performance there and i didn't conduct it again for 15 years out of fear and then when i did, when i when i reapproached it as if it was a brand new piece it's actually my favorite of the brahms symphonies and when i reapproached it and, and did it again 
it was a very freeing experience. But for 15 years, I couldn't go near it. I thought, oh, all, all you're going to do is recreate, do what the bad things you did the first time. So that's why I chuckled. <laughs> yes, no, and I think you're right. I mean, I think sometimes if we have a bad experience with a piece, we do become frightened of it. And you don't know, sometimes you know it's you, but sometimes it may just not have been the good chemistry with the audience. Or the soloist, you know. I mean, one of the things I find really difficult is doing a piano concerto with a soloist who feels the pulse of a movement, you know, two-thirds the speed that you do or whatever. You know, however hard you try, there's a sort of feeling of, of, of not getting in the way and then you start twitching and, you know, and, and then we've all been in those situations where out of respect for a soloist, sometimes you're not actually in control enough and, 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 and that can be difficult as well. I think... Mm. And we, sh we should be allowed to fail as conductors. I think that's one of the really big problems. If you, I mean, you know, I'll give you one very obvious example, and I'm sure it's uh, it's true of, of every principal conductor. You know, if you're a principal conductor and you do 10 weeks a year, all the orchestra ever really talk about is the one week where you weren't very good. You know, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there, there's a, you know, there's a terrible tendency to, for us all to be, uh, you know, painted by failure and, and our successes, um, both from the people who watch us, but also within ourselves, we, we take very lightly. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Oh, well, I tell you what I do quite like <laughs> is something like a packet of minstrels in the suitcase or a box of Twix or something or a box of after race. I'll tell you what it is, it's when you've done two weeks in Taiwan, and you're really enjoying oriental food and you just suddenly have that desire for something western you know or some mm. childlike thing it might just be a bit of chocolate or yeah what else i mean you know the obvious thing book um but um yeah i'm, I'm you know i'm remarkably sort of um i'm an easy traveler i don't like traveling but i'll i won't ever pack um you know more than 20 minutes before i leave and i don't normally leave anything um and complete them to my wife and my wife's touring she always packs about four days in advance but i don't <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor having an empty diary at the moment <laughs> <laughs> well I we're, I all, change. <laughs> we're, we're all we're all in that but in that um in particular boat at the moment <laughs> yes that's for sure um what would i change oh, i suppose if i was really honest i'd like i would just love that we all both sides become a little bit less hard I think we need to remind ourselves that music is the most wonderful thing and that we've all got the most fantastic gifts and we should be a little bit more generous to each other in every way about sharing them. I mean, it is one of the great sadnesses, I think, of the musical world is that, you know, I love musicians individually and yet the, so often the atmosphere in a rehearsal room can become so toxic amongst musicians. And that is a real tragedy. And sometimes it's even nothing to do with the music. It could be the management, it could be the day of the week, it could be the fact that it's horribly hot or horribly cold, or they don't want to play Beethoven, or they don't want you, or they want a different conductor. There are so many reasons for people to get upset and get annoyed. All of us. We should have a minute before we make music mm. in a sort of slightly prayerful way. God, you can imagine how badly this would go down. Just to <laughs> reflect, and just, to, just to sort of, I'm not a religious person, but just to sort of thank God that we have this gift of, music making and somehow just consecrate ourselves to being a little bit nicer but that's probably true of most people in most jobs you know i think that is one of the sadnesses is as i say you know so often the musical world individually is so friendly I and mean, you know i'll even go on a plane somewhere or in an airport or on a train and somebody will come up to you because they're in some orchestra or other you can re never remember which one but they will come up and say oh hello do you remember you conducted us or whatever you probably can't you know but there is a real niceness about individuals and yet somehow the, the atmosphere of we, we all need to work harder on the management of orchestras to make ourselves happier because when an orchestra is happy music's often the most wonderful thing and when it's sad it's the product really gets in the way, doesn't it? What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? If I wasn't a conductor, I think this is going to make you laugh a bit, but um, we haven't really talked anything about the education work I do, and that's fine because we've talked enough about everything else. But I would like to be probably a head teacher um, and probably in a school for difficult kids. I think that's what I would like to do because I think um, I'm 
would be quite good at that. I think I'm emotionally quite empathetic or empathic and both actually exist because I looked them up recently. Um, <laughs> and I did, I couldn't, didn't know which was the right word. Um, and I, uh, there's that sense of, you know, nurturing a human being and, and I would like to, to do that. I mean, the relationships I've had through my teaching are always very important to me. And sometimes we have a great uh, capacity, even as conductors, you know, if you're working with youth or whatever, just a quiet word of support and encouragement and, and often set somebody off on a really good path. And that's something that we should always remember. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, well, I think it would have to be, this is going to upset so many people, but I think it would have to be a really good tulip on the boy in a fantastic Spanish restaurant with the, just the most wonderful Ribera Duero wine. I think it would, something of that kind would, you know, and really fantastic chips made with olive oil and maybe some good chorizo or something, you know, just a, a real Spanish experience, I'm afraid. But it would have to be quite non-vegetarian. <laughs> and that's just fine uh, as was our whole talk Paul I've really really enjoyed it and I'd like to thank you very much and I hope to see you soon it'd be a great pleasure it's very nice to talk to you Michael A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson next time I chat with a conductor who was born in Romania studied in the United States of America and is now Chief Conductor with the WDR Symphony Orchestra in Cologne and Music Director-designate to the Orchestra Nationale de France. Until then, bye-bye!